You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Have your Bible in front of you. You can open to the Matthew, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to have the scripture on the overhead as well. Today, we're going to continue our teaching titled Sound Bites from Jesus. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 through 12 together. It's really the introduction to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and it has everything to do with location. There's nothing meant particularly more than that. It's just the Sermon on the Mount. And where Jesus gave this particular sermon, he specifically kicked it off with an introdu- introduction called the Beatitudes. And so we were able to spend some time there. I think we might even have a little picture of the uh, the mount of maybe we don't have a picture of mount there we go that is the the attitude the mount of beatitudes is so beautiful it sits up on a hill and it looks down into the galilee you can see just a natural amphitheater where jesus taught from and where he uh, presented the sermon on the mount and uh, we were there we were there as a team we got to teach a little bit from that very place now of course all those places have churches built over the top of them so we stand in the general location of where jesus stood and we we teach the beatitudes or we taught the beatitudes from there beautiful beautiful place to be you know i think most of us i i really do i think most of us have had those kind of uh, of dreams dreams where you're in your happy place uh, and then you wake up you wake up and you realize uh, that you are really not in your happy place anymore you're looking at a hard place you're actually looking at a very, very hard place where you've hit real life and real life has hit you. And that you realize that you're going through a very, very difficult time. And for some people, when they wake up from their happy dream early in life, when their mom and dad introduced them to the word divorce, other people wake up from their happy place when the spouse that they've loved for years and years is suddenly gone. Others wake up from their happy place when you're told that your job is disappearing, that it's going away, that they're looking for other ways to accommodate the business. Real life hits us. It comes to us. You wake up. Every dream comes to an end, and it's marked by loss. Every dream that ends is always marked by loss. Unfortunately, loss happens to all of us. You might be facing it now, you'll be facing it later. We face loss in this life. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust. Jesus said, man, when you're in this world, it is hard and it is difficult and it brings you trouble. So here's the question. The question that Jesus really answers in the Beatitudes, the question is, is how do we move through the moments of loss? And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has this incredible soundbite. It's called the Beatitudes. They're promises from Jesus. Jesus says when you go through life, it's going to be hard. And here's the way that you can maneuver. Here's the way that you can emotionally and spiritually manage and even be victorious through the most difficult situations. Last week, we talked about the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor. Today, we're going to look at a few other of those Beatitudes. It's in verse 4 where it says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. 
And what I want to do is read the whole thing again to you because it's worth reading. It's so poetic. It's so insightful. We hear these things that Jesus speaks and they bless our lives. And this is what it says beginning at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 5. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, remember these are his neighbors, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus brings this wonderful list for us, and it's a, a life-giving list. Again, the sound bites of Jesus, we've talked about blessed are the poor. Today, we're looking at blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed or happy are those who've experienced loss. Now, that's an odd thing to think about, isn't it? It's counterintuitive. It's kind of upside down. It doesn't actually sound like that's possible. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Does that even make sense to our natural minds? It is counterintuitive, and it seems like uh, a different way of thinking, like blessed are the poor. When we talked about that last week, that doesn't make sense. Shouldn't it be blessed are the rich? Or blessed are the well-off. But here in verse 4, Jesus says, blessed are happier those who mourn. I think this one for me is maybe the most difficult. I know I struggle through this a little more. This particular beatitude, it just confronts everything in us that wants to hold on, that wants to maintain, that wants to have and keep what it has or what it's been given. But this tells us, this particular beatitude says that there is going to be loss. And that's hard. It's hard for us to accept. It's like saying, happy are the sad, or happy are the unhappy. When you think about that, what is Jesus saying? He's saying there is hope for us. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, Scripture describes the meaning of mourning for us in a few different ways. One of the ways that Scripture speaks to us is mourning the tragedies that life has brought to us, that happen in our lives. Blessed are those who lost a loved one, blessed are those who lost a job, blessed are those who lost their health because you will, you will in Jesus be comforted. This is one of those things that is unexplainable, but it's real, it's true. It's something that happens in your own heart, in your own mind, and for you and me to try to explain blessed are the mourn for they will be comforted, that is a difficult thing to do. It's something that you sense or feel or get a hold of more than you can actually verbalize what's going on. There is a blessing that comes in mourning. You know, I've witnessed this. I've seen the blessing that comes in mourning. 
Um, I know for this last several months, Annette and I have gone through family loss, um, people in our family who have passed away, and it's a difficult thing. But we've watched the blessing of Jesus Christ work in their life. Is it easy? It's not easy at all. It's difficult. It's difficult to even put into words what's going on. But what is going on is Jesus is leading you to experience things about him that happen only through tears. Experiencing things that go on in the life and your life and others' lives that happen only through tears. It's a deeper peace, a deeper love. Um, a, a great blessing and mo most importantly comes through his presence. It's just the promise that Jesus gives us for those that mourn, for those that are going through loss. He says, I will be there. I will be present in your life. What a gift that we've been given when we know the presence of Jesus is real. I've had family members through this last year that have gone through loss and, and, and they've shared with us just the closeness of God's presence during that loss, especially in times when no one else is around, you know, those times that you wake up early in the morning and you recognize that you're in a state of loss and you cry out and the presence of Jesus comes and is so strong and is so real. And that's the testimony that we have that we've been given in Jesus Christ. That there are things that are going on that only can be resolved by the presence of Jesus. There are times that Jesus comes and maybe not even a word is spoken. But you know his presence is there, that it's real. When there is a nearness to Jesus, there is a blessing. We don't often like studying the book of Job. I don't get excited about going through Job, but I do know there are realities in the book of Job that you can only find in the book of Job. One thing that he says in the book of Job, and it's, it's a beautiful saying to me, it says, and he says this, My ears have heard you, but now my eyes see you. He's saying there's a breakthrough that's happening. I, I've heard your words. I've, I've heard your, your voice, but now my eyes are seeing you. That I'm not only hearing you now, but I'm seeing you. That there's a sensitivity in our lives when we go through mourning, where, where uh, our tears flow and, and our hearts lean in to take a hold of the presence of Jesus Christ, where we're not just hearing his voice anymore, but we're, we're literally seeing him. That God literally comes into the space created by our loss, and he generously fills that loss and that space with himself. He doesn't substitute anything else. He just brings himself. And through scripture, we know that he's enough. Now, like Jesus, I know that the wounds that we experience in life, when we go through the season of mourning and we get a hold of that and we experience the comfort of Jesus in our life, what we recognize is those wounds that have been inflicted on us during a, a season of difficulty, we know that they become sacred wounds. They're wounds that remind us that Jesus is alive. There are, uh, there are wounds that remind us that Jesus, he drew close to us, that he's with us, and that his presence is real. I don't know what kind of season you might be going through exactly, but what I want to do just for a moment, I want to I take uh, just a, a little bit of time and pray. Pray for those that mourn right now. Whatever that might be, the loss of whatever. You fill in the blank. You know what it is. But I want to pray in Jesus' name. Father, we know that 
you've given us a promise. And that promise is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lord, we just thank you that you have given this promise to us, and we rest in that promise. And what we do and we decide to do in this place is take the wounds that we've experienced. Some of those wounds are fresh wounds of loss, and we give them to you, and we ask that you, over time, would make those sacred wounds, that when others go through the difficulty we may have gone through, that we're able to say, look and see what the Lord has done. Look and see how the Lord has worked in our lives. So we've heard your word, and Lord, during these times, we want to see you. We want to see your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, and we say, amen. Now look at verse 5 with me just for a moment. It says this. This is another sound bite of Jesus. This is the one that kind of rocks your world, especially if you're a mover and a shaker. Uh, actually, this particular beatitude was, was, was strongly rejected uh, by a Roman way of life and strongly rejected by a Greek way of life. And those were the cultures that Jesus lived in during that time. Anytime you talked about this particular attribute, people would go the other way. They would think you were weak. They would think that you didn't have really anything to do in life, that you didn't really have a lot of gumption. This soundbite is appealing, especially when you get a little older. Because when you're younger, you want to take the world by force. You want to take the world through your giftings and through your intellect and through all those things that a young man or a woman want to do, but you get to this place and you recognize something that's amazing. Listen to this one. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. First of all, again, meekness was not a quality seen as a good quality or a strong quality back during the day of Jesus. And I don't know how it's all together viewed today, but I don't know if we think about it much. Because how do the weak inherit anything? Because we equate meekness with weakness. But it's that, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That, that is the furthest thing from what God is saying or what, what the Word is saying here. Now, what I want to do is just put a little bit of a pause and show you something about the Beatitudes. Remember, last week I talked about this actually being a progression a progression or a, a track to salvation when you read the Beatitudes. So when you look at the first three Beatitudes, notice those. It says poor, mourning, and meek. Now these are about emptying ourselves out. If you read those, it has everything to do with being empty and emptying yourself out, being poor, admitting, confessing, mourning loss. That's emptying out. Meekness is about turning over any power that you might have and letting God work in and through you. Those three things are about an empty vessel. That's what Jesus is describing here, and he's doing it with great intention. Because when you're empty, God can fill you. You look at that next beatitude, and we'll go over next week. It's the bridge beatitude. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, now you're spiritually hungry. When you come to the place of being poor and mourning and meek, there's a hunger, a spiritual hunger that's stirred up in your heart that only Jesus can fill. And it's like God's Spirit saying to you, I've got you now where I want you. This is the place, this is the moment that I can fill you up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Then what happens is there's a filling. If you look at the rest of the Beatitudes, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and then those 
those that are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You want to be filled? What Jesus says here, then be empty. See, counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense, does it? If you want to be filled, then be empty. Empty of you and full of God. That's exactly what the first three Beatitudes are about. They're about emptying ourselves. That's a hard one. That's a hard one to live through. We like the fullness. We like to be rich. We, we like to be in charge. But Jesus says, listen, the only way that you're really going to go through life is that you empty yourself out so that I can fill you. And the exchange rate is wonderful there because what he's filling you with are not things you would fill yourself with. In fact, he's filling you with things that you can't even imagine and get a hold of. There's nothing you can do to conjure these things up. Merciful, that's a gift. He gives it to you. When he talks about pure in heart, he gives that to you. Peacemakers, he gives that to you. Because you've experienced things that maybe others haven't. And you come to that place where you've experienced poorness. You've, you've experienced mourning. You've experienced what it is to be meek. And God says, now you can take the things that I'm going to give you and you can give them away. Because in this same sermon, if you go down a little further, Jesus says, be a light in the world. Shine your light. Be salt. Be light. How can you do that? You can only do that if fundamentally you're living out the Beatitudes in your own life. That's how that works in our lives. The way of Jesus is so, so different. So upside down, so counterintuitive. The first will be last, and the last shall be first. It's better to give than to receive. You must die to live. The least will become the greatest. Serving rather than ruling, and you're weak to be strong. Just think about that. That's only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we have this one in verse 5 of chapter 5 in Matthew. Blessed are the meek, for they will be and they will inherit the earth. My dad used to say there are two things that you need to know when you're, uh, when you're learning about life. When you're looking down the road and you're thinking, well, this is what I want to pursue as an occupation or a vocation, whatever that might be. My dad was a, a strong believer in not only allowing you to know what you want, but he made sure that you knew what you didn't want. And through my life and upbringing, he would put those two together. He would say, I know this is what you want, but you got to do a few things that you're going to know this is what you don't want in life. My dad used to, <laughs> he used to hire his three boys out in the summer to a, a woman who was a widow and ran a farm. She had a, a big farm, and on that farm, there were pigs. And uh, when we went there, uh, the assignment was to clean the pig pens out that were left unclean for maybe three or four months in about 100-degree weather. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, in life. Now I'm going to a way, way extreme place for you, but I knew when I did that with a snow shovel, you'd run in, you'd <gasps> hold your breath, you'd run in and take a snow shovel, and then you'd run out and you'd dump it and <sharp inhale> take another breath, and you just did that all day long. When I got home, it was like my dad's looking at me going, huh, now you know what you don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be something I really want to pursue. See, in the Beatitudes, you're kind of getting the same thing here with this one. That, uh, we know what meekness might be, but it's better to look at what it isn't. 
what, what, what meekness is not. Uh, because we have something to compare it to. We can look at it and say, hey, here's what meekness is not. So here's what meekness is not. It's not weakness. We've said that. It's not wimpiness. It's not being soft or passive. It's, it's none of those things. It is certainly not being pushy on the other end or conceited or self-centered. It's kind of like uh, the old rule of the kids that had their, their, their club in elementary school and on their fort. They had a little sign, and they said, when you come in here, uh, don't be too high, don't be too low, just be right, just, just right. Meekness is kind of like that. It's being just right. It's not being self-righteous. It's not being conceited. You see, if Jesus didn't have the crowd's attention yet in those first few Beatitudes, he would have gotten their attention right here. If there were people that were taking a little nap or, or yawning or not paying attention, when Jesus said this one, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, he had everyone's undivided attention. And the reason is, is because all of Israel, their theology was around land. It was around Judea. It was around the promised gift. You see, their forefathers had been promised through Abraham that they would inherit a promised land. And you see, the story really is about people getting to the promised land. And now they're there. And they're being occupied again. And that promised land is being taken from them. And so when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, everyone went, what? What's he saying now? What's he talking? He's talking about earth. He's talking about where we live. He's talking about the promised land. That's what he's talking about. See, it's right here that Jesus was speaking to religious nationalists. That's who he was talking to. He was talking to, let's call them zealots, because that's what they were called back then. They were called zealots in that day. And in fact, this group of people were obsessed with and impassioned with inheriting the earth. They felt that this was their sworn duty, that there was nothing above this one right here, that you take the land, that you hold on to the land, that you keep the land. And if there are any occupiers, you dispel those occupiers. You see, that's what when Jesus came, some of his disciples were looking at him going, ah, there he is. He's the one that is physically going to take this land back for us. And that was a draw for followership, by the way. People followed him because of that. You see, in their recent history, I'm going to say 100 years, 150 years back, they had a person who almost got this done. And so in their minds, like we have, we have historical figures and heroes we look back to and we say, ah, that's my hero. Those are my heroes. For these people, for the zealots, for the nationalists, it was Judas Maccabeus. Ah, oh, 160 years before, he almost got rid of the Romans. At least he got rid of more Romans than anyone else. Died a fateful, horrible death. Didn't quite accomplish the goal. But it's in their history. It's in their history, and they know it. So they're signing up for something. They're thinking, okay, we're coattailing with Jesus so we can inherit the land. So this land will be ours. Who did Jesus have that was impassioned over this? Well, one of them was Judas Iscariot. He was one who was a zealot. He was one that was a nationalist. He was one that was saying, I'm going to take this land. I'm going to take it, and I think Jesus can help me get there. 
You see, he became disenchanted with Jesus when he started seeing that fade away. When he started realizing, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not talking about real dirt. He's actually talking about something spiritual out there that I don't really have an interest in. I thought when I signed up with Jesus that I would be taking the land, that I would be fulfilling my inheritance. And if you think Judas was the only one, you have to think again, because there were a few others that had the same theological predisposition. Do you remember two brothers talking to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, can I sit on your right? Can I sit on your left? What are they talking about? Talking about taking the land. They're talking about when the land's taken, Jesus sits on the throne, James and John, appropriately named sons of thunder, were sitting with Jesus. See, this is their, what they were imagining. And this is where, as Jesus was going to the cross, and he got closer and closer, they became more and more disillusioned. Thinking, I thought he was going to take the land. I thought he was going to do it. I thought he was going to do it by force. <laughs> but Jesus flips the script. Imagine hearing this. Blessed are the meek. Are you kidding me? There's no value here in this culture with meek people. But it says, and Jesus says, the meek shall inherit what I've wanted, what my ancestors have wanted. And that's the promised land. Overthrowing the Romans and taking the land of Judea back was the very center of their theology. This was their promised land. And, 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 the, and to the zealot, uh, their Messiah would come and lead them into battle, lead them by force, that they would overcome and they would conquer the unlawful occupiers. Those were the Romans. And it wasn't only Judas. Again, there were others that had those leanings, everyone probably in a different place. I would say this. My guess would be almost all of, if not all of the disciples, had some predisp predisposition this way. Judas is just kind of the most obvious. See, the zealots and others like them were extremely self-righteous, self-important. Now you know why Jesus is telling them that it's the meek. Because they're thinking it's going to be then. I mean, how do you come up with a, a phrase or a saying or a request that says, can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? You think highly of yourself. <laughs> and, they, and they did. And Jesus is saying it's not the self-righteous, it's not the self-important. That is actually the opposite of meek, another what you don't want to be. It was in their self-righteous attitude that they found their power and influence, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. And from this came a set of laws and standards and expectations. And these standards guided the way that they lived, the Talmud guided the way that they lived. And it is an, something they lived by, and, and they wanted to press that in on everyone else. See, it wasn't only wanting their, their lives to line up this way. They were wanting everyone else to line up this way. And they would aggressively enforce this way of living. Think about the encounters Jesus had with this group of people. Think about the people that were poor, those people that were going through hardship, those people that were maybe even living in sin at the time, and Jesus interacted with someone like, whoa, Zacchaeus. You see, these are the people that were just in a row over that. They came unglued because Jesus was spending time with a betrayer, 
And that was Zacchaeus, an adulteress, the woman at the well. Jesus spent time. Bartimaeus, a blind one who's infirmed, that he spent time with them, that he cared for them, that he loved them. See, Jesus was the one who embodied meekness. And he said, there is another way. And it's not by force. It's not by the sword. It's by your life. You see, they were aggressive in forcing the zealots were these kinds of laws, again, to the point of judgment and criticism and even violence towards those who didn't believe as they believed. See, Jesus is saying and modeling something so different. The meek find their strength and influence not in their righteousness, but the meek find their strength and influence in someone else's righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. See, it's not by our righteousness that we enter. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have what we have today in the way of salvation and the gifts that God has given us. See, the word meek is translated in a few different ways. One is anger under control. Yeah, and people think, well, you really, is that, is that biblical? Yeah, the Bible says be angry and sin not. There are things that should anger us without sin, without committing sin. The meek have found the good balance between too little and too much anger. Think about being younger, a lot more angry and anger at, 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 at a young age. And, and wanting to change the world, you know, uh, a standard bearer, someone who protested other things and, and realized, I, hey, I'm just going to get, I'm, and it's good, to, it's good to stand up, but you do it under the control of God's spirit. It's good to say and point out things that are wrong under the control of God's spirit. Selfish anger is sin. It's using anger to get what you want. You've been around that. You've seen that. I think some of us have seen that. Let's say bosses, employment, maybe coaches, teachers, parents. I don't, I don't know where that influence comes in your life, but it was anger that was used to enforce something that that person wanted, and we just know that's not right. That's, that damages us. That hurts us. That hurts in relationships. But selfless anger is being angry at the right things and using it to motivate you to accomplish right things. When you look out and you see sex trafficking, when you see boys and girls that are sold, that should anger us. And we should say there's something we should do about that. Some of you have some of those things that go on. And that we have outlets, we have places we can go. And in meekness... And in a constructive way, we look at Im uh, eliminating those things that are wrong. Those things that have destroyed people's lives. Think about what those are for you. What rises up in you? What makes something rise up in you? When you see a wrong in the world, what is it? Pursue that without anger. I mean selfish. Let it be selfless in seeing something done and accomplished. See, meekness is also described as strength under control. I think that's the one we probably have heard the most is strength under control. I know growing up and studying God's word, that's one that I always heard. 
The image is this, and it really does. The language has a lot of imagery to it. But meekness is a powerful horse that was submitted to the master uh, with no question, no, no, hardly any attempt, a horse could damage a master, <laughs> physically hurt their master. But meekness is that power under control, not striking out with it, not hurting people with it. See, Jesus did that on the cross. Remember when Jesus was taunted? If you're really Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really the Savior, then take yourself down. And they taunted him, and they spit on him, and they played games around him that, that wanted to shame him. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is meekness in its full and glorious look. That's what meekness looks like. And that's what Jesus did for us. In this beatitude, I don't know how many might know this, but this beatitude is actually a, a drawing from or a reflection of Psalm 37, verses 10 and 11. It says, a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. See, Jesus knew that. He was bringing that out. He was making them think of their inheritance and how to go about receiving their inheritance. The same is true with us today, isn't it? If we want certain things, let's say spiritual gifts, spiritual things, then it will be meekness that helps us get there. It won't be self-righteousness that will accomplish that. It will be meekness. Remember, again, what I mentioned earlier, uh, when it comes to self-righteous behavior, because that's an attitude you don't want when it comes to Jesus-likeness, when it comes to pursuing Jesus and being like Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Self-righteousness is the opposite of meekness. And self-righteousness has an adverse effect on the way that we live life with our neighbors. Remember, Jesus is talking to his neighbors here. It, we say, and it's said here, a crowd or the multitude. He's talking to people he knows and people that know him. There are people there that he recognizes and that recognize him. So he's looking at his neighbors and he's saying this. He's looking in their eyes, saying to his neighbors, listen, if you live without meekness, your relationships will fall apart. I don't think there is another attitude like self-righteousness that can repel and even repulse others more than self-righteousness. Just remember, when we're living our life, we have our witness in community. And I, I don't know if, if when the world looks at my life and, and, and they see me living my life out and they see me doing life every day, they might not even be able to articulate it or define it. But there's something in me that might repulse them. I can tell you that typically that's my self-righteousness. That's my, that's my pride that does that. It's toxic in relationships and friendships because it judges, it criticizes, and it separates me from others. I think it was Bob Goff who said this. He said, you either label them or you love them. You can't do both. So when we're in haste or we have a compulsion to label the people around us, Christians or non-Christians, just 
be careful and look at your own heart and ask yourself, am I walking, am I living in meekness? Do I give the impression that I'm following Jesus in meekness? Because that will make a difference. When you think about the people that have made the biggest impression on your life, those that have helped you change your life, those that have helped you get ahead in life, that's the quality that continues to pop up for me, is their amazing meekness with the authority and influence that they've been given. Annette and I had a good friend that was actually our, our boss, our, our supervisor, if you will. This was about 15 years ago, and his name's Tom. And Tom opened so many doors for us to lead and to be around other leaders. And, and if anyone was going to pick out a quality in Tom's life, uh, he embodied meekness to us. Uh, there were other people that we love and still do, but maybe meekness isn't the first thing you think about. But when you think about Tom Ferguson, you think about meekness. That's what you think about. That's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Tom. Because Tom was always willing to give you the platform. He was always willing to allow you and give you permission to move ahead, to grow. And because of him in our lives, because of, let me say, his meekness, there was blessing that came to our lives. And, um, and I thanked him. I hope I did. I thanked him literally till the day he passed for that. And I said, Tom, thank you over and over and over again. And the last time that I told Tom thank you was in a night in Denver, Colorado, and I just had finished with a leadership training session for the district there, and I went to my hotel, and the Holy Spirit was just saying, hey, call Tom and tell him thank you, really for his meekness in your life, for, for him giving you opportunity to, to lead. And, and I, I didn't want to. I was tired, but I did, and I called, and I talked to Tom on the phone and thanked him, and it was typical Tom. He reversed it. You know, and he, he said to me, no, you're, you're the one. You're, you guys, you and Annette, are, you just are doing the, a good job. And see, I couldn't even give him a compliment because it was turned around on me. And, and, and uh, I went to bed that night. And I got up the next morning and went to the, the meeting. And people I noticed were, they're cry, they were crying in the meeting. And I, I said, well, what's going on here? And they said, we just heard that Tom Ferguson passed away. And I said, no, that's not true. I talked to him last night. And they said, you what? You talked to him last night? And I said, yeah. They said, no, he, he passed away. And the best I could tell, it was within an hour after we talked. I'm so thankful that we had that opportunity to have a great exchange. And I don't think, I don't think that would have happened if it weren't for his quality of meekness, his quality of humility. The meek will inherit the earth. That's the promise. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we want to thank you today for the good things you're doing and the way that you lead us and guide us. And just pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to work in our lives and that you would um, touch our families, our children, our grandchildren, our, our neighbors, Lord, uh, that what would be seen in us is as we do go through a season, a time of mourning, as we prayed over those that mourn earlier, we're also, Lord, praying over a meek heart, that there would be extinguished in us a self-righteousness that would want, uh, want the spotlight. You, you, Lord, are the one that deserves all glory and all honor. 
And today we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say, Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.